the four-wheel chase experience. I love it. The following is a production by Cutting to the Chase Podcast. Charlie Romiliotis, what's up, man? How you doing? What's going on, man? Long time no talk. Oh yeah, man. It's been it's been uh, it's been a year already, which is crazy. But uh, lots of the, lots of things obviously going on in hockey, the Blackhawks. But what you've been up to this summer? Just trying to get away from it a little bit for a couple weeks or so. Yeah, it's it's been a. Uh, I feel like every every summer I try to just mentally decompress, but there's always stuff going on. Just like this job is. It's either a hundred miles per hour or it's zero. Like it's yeah. really hard to have like an in between. So every summer I try to, I try to get as zero or close to zero as possible. Obviously, on my PTO time, I can really unplug. But you know, sometimes you find yourself just thinking you're going out on the golf course on a Monday, and then something happens, and it's you know you got to rush home to take care of it. So that can be a little bit exhausting, but comes with the territory. Um, no complaints on my end. But yeah, it is nice that we are kind of finally in like a, a really quiet period of the off season where I can shut my brain off a little bit before we ramp back up in September. Yeah, it, it goes so fast. I mean, I was so, I mean, I'm just doing this for fun. Like I, I write about the Blue Jackets for uh, First Ohio Battery and I was so just tired of last season. And I mean, both the Blackhawks <laughs> and Blue Jackets were in a similar uh, you know, a similar place in terms of bottom of the standings, just trying to get through the grind and just the ugliness of the on ice product. And I was just so ready just from a hobby perspective. So I was curious, I mean, you're doing this for obviously it's your full-time job. So on the one hand, you probably have maybe one of the best jobs that you can have in terms of, of covering a hockey team. But obviously the, the, the team has been going through a lot of turmoil and ugliness off the ice and on the ice. So was last season kind of uh, was it kind of tough just to you're covering the Blackhawks, but still, I mean, it's 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 more fun when they're competitive and winning, right? Definitely, I'll say this though. I think two seasons ago was significantly harder than last season, and I'm not I'm not really talking about the off ice mm-hmm. stuff that we had to cover. It was more so the Hawks went into that season where they. They traded for Seth Jones. They acquired Marc Andre Fleury, Tyler Johnson. They made all these moves to, and with the goal of making the playoffs. And the first month of the season, they fired Jeremy Colleton because they had like one win in whatever the month of October. And so that was actually more grueling than last season, where the expectation was they are going to be bad. They're supposed to be bad. And it's okay that they're going to be bad because that's going to be part of the rebuild. So it was almost like the wins and losses were so secondary last season that like fans didn't even care about the wins and losses. It became, you know, how's Lucas Reichel developing? How are the young defensemen? There's a new coach, Luke Richardson. All those storylines became like second, like it was able, it was easy for me to walk inside the locker room and, and feel a little loose because the wins and loss didn't matter. Whereas two years ago, by November, it was like, how do we keep spinning that this team is still trying to make the playoffs? You know, so I feel like that actually might be where Columbus was the last season, where they had high expectations, maybe not Stanley Cup aspirations, but playoff contenders, and they weren't even close to that. That is actually really exhausting uh, of a team to cover, as opposed to like knowing you're covering a rebuilding team and it's supposed to be bad and it's okay that it's bad. Yeah, that is true. I mean, it's hard to come up with a storyline that's not like the same thing. And it's you can you can only write so much about how bad something is and what can we do to fix this and what can they what could they do differently? What could they change? So I can understand more so from your from a professional, um, you know, trying to do this as your job and try to figure <laughs> out storylines or whatever probably is pretty challenging. Yeah, for sure. And like I, I remember, I remember two years ago when the Black during that year where they had Flurry and and um, Seth Jones. I mean, well, Seth Jones is still on the team, but like during that year where they had those guys, it was like December, and I remember Patrick Kane sitting at his stall, and maybe it might might have been January, or whatever. And and he was like, you know, if we could just rip together some wins, I like, can get on a run. And it's like they're like twenty points out of a playoff spot. Like, yeah. I'm going to write this that the Hawks are still remaining hopeful, but it's not realistic, you know? So it's just like, it, it was exhausting to kind of like to pull some storylines out of that. But um, yeah, it's going to be, and I think it might be 
that way again this season. But the exciting part is that they have Connor Bedard, and so it's going to be the Blackhawks immediately become watchable again. No matter right. if they lose five to three every night, Bedard might have two, three points. He might score a goal, and it's like, man, the future is coming. You know, because because this kid is is makes the Blackhawks entertainment or entertaining. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you have the Connor Bedard buzz, the excitement. <laughs> what was your reaction on lottery night when, you know, they're they're going down all the list of teams? And I mean, I don't have to tell you the reaction from the Columbus <laughs> perspective when Kevin Weeks accidentally, accidentally, or I mean, I think he did legitimately accidentally slip it because there was whatever on the, the behind the scenes with the whole production side of it. But they're all of a sudden just like in Columbus Falls, <laughs> it's down to Chicago and Anaheim. So, I mean, what was your reaction when the Hawks did win that lottery? Yeah. So, yeah, poor Kevin Weeks. He got a lot of flack for it, but it, it really was not his mistake. Like, I, right. I think they, they, like on the teleprompter or whatever, it had read this and then go to break. So it definitely felt like a behind the scenes issue. Um, I digress. I, so on lottery night, I was in studio for NBC Sport Chicago and we were going to do a show. I think our show was from, the, I think the lottery was from six to six 30 and we had a lottery show at six 30. So right when the lottery, ended uh or you know the lottery show ended we were supposed to go on the air well of course my other duties also include writing something for the website so going into the day i basically pre-wrote five stories of the blackhawks landing the first pick the second pick all the way to five because those are their odds and once it got to like five four whatever like once once they weren't five or four i'm like well, they they have better odds of being one or two because I think the the third overall pick was like was like seven percent. Like it was very, or actually, it might have been lower than that. It was very low. So I'm like, they mu- they must have jumped inside the top two. And at that point, we're like, I don't know, seven eight minutes away from going live on the air. So like, we know that coming out of the commercial break, whether it's two or or one, like I have to be ready to publish my story feed it out on my social channels and then like inform my other team that like, Hey, this story is up. Can you guys promote it everywhere else? Um, so when it, it was, when Chicago did, when it flipped over to Chicago, like I got Pat Boyle, who's the, the pre and post host for NBC sport Chicago. He throws his hands up in the air. They're celebrating. And I like, I, I'm like, I immediately go into I got to get this story up. I got to publish. So like there was no kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening right now. It was like immediately into work mode. And then um, and then we, whatever, we went live on the air. And we had Kyle Davidson on like right away after he did his ESPN interview. So it, it was like, I don't think it really hit me until after like I got home that night because after the show ended, we had to do an emergency podcast. And then it was kind of like I was laying in bed and like I, I get home and my brother's still awake because he's like fired up and and I it was kind of like I remember having like a, a conversation. I'm like the the next 15, 20 years just changed for for the Blackhawks, for my job, for the interest from the casual fan with the Blackhawk. Like everything is everything changed because of this one kid. So it was it was a lot to digest, but it didn't happen until after I finally got home that night and was like, wow, like I can't believe that happened. And I, I have to imagine your job from that point forward between the end of the lottery and the actual NHL draft was probably pretty easy because you knew who the first pick was going to be. You didn't have to speculate right. be, well, if it's this guy, if it's that guy. I mean, no one, it's Bedard at that point. So all you have to do is write about Bedard stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fun fun fact, I, I, think, I think back to, I was in Vancouver for the 2019 draft when the Blackhawks jumped from 12 to 3. And in that draft, it was Jack Hughes, Capo Caco, like those two were for sure. But number three, it was like, who who's going three? Is it Zegris? Is it? It was a, it was like ten to thirteen players that could have gone in that range. And between you and me, uh, we're not recording, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I think I pre-wrote like six to eight players, like that the Blackhawks could take in that, or like getting ready that okay, if the Blackhawks take this guy, I got a story ready. We we were walking into the draft. Like I was walking into the arena when I think it was Sam Constantino from Sportsnet had tweeted like, like signs are pointing to the Blackhawks taking Kirby Doc at number three. And I see that tweet and I'm like, I don't have a Kirby Doc story ready. 
he was not one of my six to eight guys that I pre-wrote. So in this case, it was very nice to know that if they got one, it's Bedard. If they got two, it's Fantilli. If they got three, it could be, you know, a handful of players, not like a wide pool of players. So in that way, it was definitely nice to know that I could have some pre-write pre-write stories ready, but also kind of like prepare for like what the the bigger picture column might look like. Yeah, I just going back to uh, the end of last season, I was just so ready for a break and um, just get into the offseason. I was so tired. I mean, you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard it at some point on your end in terms of just just tank, just finish last. And of course, you know, you you know what's at stake. And so I get it. But at the same time, I'm thinking, man, who knows for, for the Jackets luck, they'll finish, uh, you know, third or I mean, I know they were guaranteed a certain slotting based on where they finished. Right. So they it lucked out on their end even to get Fantilli. I mean, that was awesome because people thought it was going to be Carlson. I mean, Carlson, I think it's going to be solid. And there's a lot of different solid prospects. But Fantilli is number one in any other year, most likely. So uh, it's like the best consolation prize. But I was just at, you know, going back to the very beginning, it's crazy that we're already going into to training camp in the next month or so. It just goes so fast. Yeah, it really does, and and that is so true. I, I when the Hawks drafted Bedard, then we had to kind of go get ready in the media room to wait. And I'm like, hang on a second, and like I saw that, um, I saw that uh, Anaheim was getting ready to pick, and I was like, I got to go see this pick because one of my one of one of my friends is actually a Columbus fan, and I was like, I just got to see who they take. It's going to be whatever. Or uh, I'm sorry, Anaheim. Uh, so I was waiting to see who Anaheim was going to pick. So then Columbus and they picked Leo Carlson. And, and I'm like, oh, my God. And so it was it was crazy. Like you said, any other year, Fantilli's probably won. Um, so I, I see it differently, though, from Columbus's perspective. I think I, I think last season was obviously not ideal, but they basically got a free right. franchise player. Yeah. In a season that like, well, if you're going to be bad, then be very bad. Don't be exactly. like out, right outside the playoffs. So they they really took advantage of we just got a free franchise player in a year that we thought we were going to make the playoffs. So we will take Adam Fantilli as the consolation prize. And that's it. I mean, once the season was pretty much over after October, they go 0-3 to start. They had a very tough stretch with Tampa and St. Louis and Carolina. And then they were three and nine, I think, going into November. And we knew that at that point they were pretty much dead. Yeah. The Larson fire, Larson tweets were rampant from November going going forward. And the goaltending was terrible. And yeah, it, it is basically just lose, just lose, just lose. I was just so worried that they were going to lose and lose and lose and then still end up on the outside of the top two. So yeah, and I do know that when uh, the NHL was doing the lottery, it was already done ahead of time, so it wasn't like it was live, you know. Right. Obviously, the the act the uh, the slip was not, you know, on weeks, but yeah. Anyway, though, it's, it it's hard out. to convince the casual fan <laughs> yeah. that hey, this was pre-recorded. And they're like, yeah, okay, sure. It's exactly. Like, there's a multi. There's a like whatever million dollar firm and Ernst and Young overseeing this. You like you think their reputation is they're like yeah, let's let's rig it. Like no chance, no chance. Right. It fuels the uh, it fuels the conspiracy theorists, but you're right. Um, so obviously, last season, as you said, it wasn't really about wins and losses. It was about trying to develop. And, and it sounds like Luke Richardson and his first year as head coach, um, a lot of people seem to be feeling good about Luke Richardson, right? And obviously, it's you know it's basically like you can't really look at the wins and losses, but you're trying to see players developing and are they playing hard and things like that. Um, so what did you learn about Luke? Uh, maybe the team's reception based on what you saw and covering them every day. How did you feel that his first year went considering everything? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it really is hard to look at the wins and losses and feel like Luke was kind of exceeded expectations, but he, he really did. If, if, I, if I go back and dissect every game, win or loss, like, or let's just do the losses like the Hawks were in so many one goal games and a lot of those one goal games ended up turning into two goal games because like the opponent scored an empty netter. So I think that's exactly what you want during a rebuilding year is competitive losses, right? Like you hate to see, you know, a five, five, one loss or a six, two loss, right? You like, you want to see two, one, three, two, four, two with an empty netter, right? Like where you're in it and it feels like the Blackhawks, Oh, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but it was like they, they, they had like 
X amount of multi-goal comeback wins in the third period. And it was like, I think it might've been an NHL record or something. It, it was something along those lines that even when they did fall into a hole, they always found a way to at least claw back in, or I should say in most games. Um, so yeah, I think my, my first impression of Luke was that, okay, he's confident, well-spoken, um, former player. So he's already like immediately got that respect of like a guy that's played however many years, 20 plus years in the NHL, um, sweet tattoos everywhere, you know? So like, he's got like that, you can walk into a locker room and command a presence. And then my impression of him at the end of the season was how did it take this guy so long to get an NHL job? Like, why did, why did he, why did he keep getting overlooked by, by some teams? And so I, I think the Blackhawks got, they, they got a real good one. Um, and I think, Kyle Davidson said this when he hired Luke or when they were going through the coaching process was we don't want a stopgap coach. We want a guy that's going to be here for the rebuild, but also be the head coach when the Blackhawks are competitive again. And after year one, I feel fairly confident that Luke is, is the right guy. Um, now we see the, the shelf life of coaches is kind of getting smaller and smaller in today's NHL. So I wonder at what point, is his message not going to resonate? I think it's obviously way too early to tell. But I will say this. When the Blackhawks are competitive again, it feels like a lot of the guys that are on the roster right now aren't going to be on the roster then. So his message might actually resonate with the locker room much longer than an original or than just a normal head coaching lifespan and in, in that's on a playoff team right now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because as you said, first crack at it, um, he came from, was it Montreal or Toronto? Yeah, Montreal. Right? Oh, it was Montreal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think. I, I had Montreal in my head, and then I was trying to think if it was also Toronto at some point. But yeah, he came from Montreal. So first crack at it with the Hawks in general. And yeah, I think with Columbus and Brad Larson, he'd been there forever. And then he became the head coach. And they kind of surprised in that first year. But it was kind of, un, I guess, looking back, it's kind of uh, it was kind of unsustainable because they had a lot of I don't know. They just were never out of games, but it just didn't feel, I don't know. I did have high expectations going in the year too, at least higher expectations in terms of maybe being in the playoff conversation. And then it just fell flat on its flat on its, you know what? Uh, and Babcock will be interesting because I don't, I, I think he is probably short shelf life as opposed to like the Luke Richardson dynamic, but I feel pretty good about that current situation too. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out for sure. For sure. I, I, I low key am very intrigued by the, the Babcock hire. Like I wouldn't even, I wouldn't dismiss that as a bad hire. Um, I would dismiss that as an intriguing one because th there's a, there's a decent chance that that locker room responds immediately to him. I think of guys like, like Peter Laviolette, who with, with three different teams, he's taken to the Stanley cup final in his first year, right? Like, Carolina, Philly, and um, missing Nashville. someone else. Nashville. Yep. I, for, I, I forgot if it was first year, but I knew he had all three in there. And that's yeah. Some point. And I was, I'm thinking too, like Gerard Gallant, like he lasted yeah. what, three years in New York in the, with the Rangers before mm, like his two. message to two. Gee, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Two. So it's like, I don't know, but Babcock feels like the kind of guy, if you're Columbus and the, the last coach didn't work, but torts did, you know, that kind of like in for, whatever for a short lifespan it did. You know, maybe maybe the Columbus does respond to a coach like that, where they they res they respect him so much, and they'll they'll kind of run through a wall for a res you know a a winning coach like that who has won before and kind of has that respect. So I know there Babcock doesn't come without his warts, but right, um, yeah. but it, it is going to be interesting to see how much he has grown from the years off and and just how he tries to connect with the today's player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at first I laughed at that idea when I saw. Babcock as a name I was like no way there's no way that's happening <laughs> I was kind of banging the drum for Gerard Gallant but then I kind of backed off that a little bit because he's kind of been through a lot of teams in a short span recently I thought the Vegas thing wasn't really his fault but you know then New York came and went pretty fast and um I was looking at Peter Laviolette as well and just kind of we were kind of doing all the coach stories too and yeah I realized you know the Jackets their success and their time and their short time frame has come under Ken Hitchcock and John Tortorella and Hitchcock was huge on Babcock. And it does seem like these guys, the Jackets, Goudreau, and without saying, without 
throwing shots at Larson. There's a lot of veiled, like we, we want to, we want this accountability. We want someone that's, you know, obviously been there and uh, it's going to keep the standard, get the standard where it needs to be and not let things get loose. So there was mm-hmm. a lot of sort of veiled shots that like, okay, they're saying it without saying it. Do they want a guy like a Babcock or even that towards structure back in there? So I do think it's going to, should get the best out of them ideally at least in a couple of years and we'll see what going forward how that plays out but it does seem like they're all on the same page at least for sure I I think it's so important for a head coach to well for the players to to totally buy into what the head coach is selling and trust that the head coach is it like trickles down to the players. Like if the coach puts together a good game plan, holds players accountable, it's like, okay, I will run through a wall for this player. And we saw it with Joel Quinville here in Chicago. Not, not to say that Brad Larson didn't have that, but you, you, you have to like earn that respect first because Brad Larson doesn't walk into a locker room and instantly have the respect of the players, right? The players are kind of like, okay, who is this guy? Like we got to make sure that, Whatever. And so like if if you don't earn that, it's kind of like like Jeremy Carlton here in Chicago after Joel Quinville left. I know that's such a it's such a you know, you're going from a the second winningest coach ever to Jeremy Carlton to 30, whatever he was at the time, 33, never coached an NHL game before. So like Jeremy really had to earn the respect of guys in that locker room, like Seabrook and Keith and Taves and Kane. And it's like, and if you don't ever get it it's hard for the players to buy in if the leadership group isn't bought in, right? So I think Mike Babcock walking into a locker room, I think that Columbus locker room is going to immediately respect what he's going to bring to the table. The question is, how many years is that before that his style becomes like, okay, it's it's too much now. But like in the short term, I, yeah. I can definitely see it working out. Yeah, once it was official, and even when we knew it was going to become official, I was pretty on board. I was like, you know what? They probably need this guy. So it'll right. be fun to see how it plays. But yeah, as far as the Hawks, um, obviously, pretty busy offseason aside from Bedard. I mean, they bring in, I, I know they brought in a number of guys for the most part, but like right off the bat, I'm thinking like Nick Felino, Corey Perry. So you know they're bringing in muscle to help guys like Bedard mm-hmm. and kind of keep, you know, and obviously the Perry signing is, uh, I don't know. Well, First off, wait, Perry's still there, right? Or am I am I misremembering? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. thought so. I had that. And then I was like, wait, he's still there, right? Yeah. They they traded yeah, for so his rights and then they needed to sign him and they, yeah. they eventually did. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I, I was as soon as I was saying that, I was like, wait, he is still there, right? But yeah, <laughs> uh, I know that was not a very popular signing based on his old, you know, where he's come from and everything. But um, how do you like that? You know, just the veteran additions. And obviously a guy like Bedard is probably luring in a guy like Nick Felina, who let's face it, he was on the Bruins last year, didn't win the cup. And now he's going from one of the best teams in the league to one of the worst teams in the league. But he wanted to be there too, right? So I guess it was that Bedard effect in some ways. Yeah, for sure. By the way, it's funny that you stumbled on that parry or like had to rethink that because the amount of times I've found myself this in, during this month, like friends and family asking me about the Blackhawks and I kind of have to like tap into like, oh yeah, like yeah, Taylor Hall's on the team now. Yeah, well, that's right. Because, oh yeah. You know, because because my brain is so like, so shut down from hockey that I almost like am so unplugged that I need to like, I need to review, like go to cap friendly and be like, okay, who's on the roster again? Oh yeah. Okay, great. All right. Caught up. So it's funny. Like, don't, don't feel bad about that because I've (laughs) I've done that so many times this month. Um, They did make a lot of interesting moves acquiring Taylor Hall, Nick Foligno, Corey Perry. I think last year was a lot about sheltering the, young players specifically on the back end like we saw them sign jack johnson and oh, yeah. um um see i'm already blanking like they they've had some other moves on the back end where they wanted to keep their their rockford defensemen like vlasic um isaac phillips in rockford because last year was going to be so kind of disastrous this season i can see more like let's give opportunity to the younger players but let's kind of shelter them too. Like Lucas Reichel is probably going to be full-time player. Bedard is obviously going to be full-time player. Alex Vlasic, I think, is going to be a full-time player. And it's like, how do we put those guys in situations where even though we're going to give them opportunity to flourish, maybe play top six minutes, top pairing minutes, second pairing minutes, how are we surrounding them to make sure that they are in a 
in a good spot to do that without feeling like they're in over their head. And so I think that's where you see the the Taylor Hall acquisition. I, I actually love that acquisition because you're, you're basically getting a top six, eh, whatever. He was playing middle six role in, in Boston, but he's going to play top six minutes, probably top line minutes in Chicago, where he's, he's still only, what, 31 years old? And he, he's, but the best part about that contract, it, about that uh, acquisition is his contract. It, it's only for two more years. And same with everyone else that they signed Felino, one year, Perry, one year. They don't want to spend anywhere beyond two years because that's starting year three or whatever it is, year three from now is what going to be kind of like their go time. They're like their window. So they, they fill around the edges, the Taylor hall on, on the ice. We could talk about that. Like he's obviously going to play with Bedard. So you want to make sure that Bedard has a winger to play with the Blackhawks re-sign Athanasiu because he had really good chemistry with Lucas Reichel late in the year. So that's like another two year deal where you have Bedard and hall for two years. And then you have Reichel and Athanasiu. And then you look at Felino and Perry and you're like, well, those are the veteran leadership guys that are going to make sure that the locker room is tight knit, is close. They're helping those young guys be molded as players, not just on the ice, but but off the ice. So I think there's just a lot of, you know, making sure that the locker room is in a good place, the on ice product is in a good place, not necessarily for wins and losses purposes, but making sure that the young players are actually playing with, you know, for example, Lucas Reichel. What if he's setting up guys, but he doesn't have a finisher on his line and he's not getting he's not getting assists. And now it's like now his confidence is waning because he's like, I only have, you know, whatever. He looks back at the end of the year and he only has 30 points. But it's like, well, he could have 45 if he had a scoring winger, you know. So I think that's the situation that they want to put their young guys in. And I thought Kyle has Kyle's done a really good job of of making sure that he brings those players in without overspending in term to like impact their financial flexibility down the road. That's right. Taylor Hall, huge name that I didn't even think about until you mentioned it. And yeah, I mean, the guy was a former MVP not that long ago. It might feel like a long time ago now. Yeah. But yeah, you said he's still pretty young, too. So um, and yeah, in Boston, they're so they were so deep that you could put guys, like you said, on the middle of six that would be top line almost anywhere else. So you almost you can almost hide out there in Boston as deep as they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and, and I think Taylor Hall, too. He still got something left in the tank. Yeah. I know with Boston, he got basically relegated to a third line role, but that's because Boston is loaded. I mean, they had so many, so many great guys. And um, I think Taylor Hall will also be rejuvenated by the fact that he is going to play top line minutes. He knows he's going to play top line minutes. So he's not kind of looking over his shoulder and he's going to play with Connor Bedard on the first power play unit. So he he's like, he's going to get all the opportunity in the world to gain confidence, get his cookies again and feel like, you know, he could be close to the player that he was prior. What are your expectations for Bedard? I've heard people, I don't know, I think it was at ESPN or whatever, thinking, oh, 37 goals or whatever the case is. But, uh, and also, I mean, do you think he's going, I mean, this is crazy to even put out there, but based on the hype and everything, is he going to be a McDavid part two? Is he going to be, you know, the next tier below? Or, I mean, can you even, it's 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 really not fair to even put that on him, but just from mm. your perspective, what do you think? Okay, so I'm like looking this up in real time because I, I wrote about this in, let's see, May. May 24th was the timestamp. Um, basically, I wrote like, can Cotter Bedard be a point per game player as a rookie in today's NHL. And I basically went through history and I found that only 37 players in NHL history have averaged at least a point per game in their rookie season. And this is like a minimum of 40 games played. So this is like an actual, like what counts as an NHL full season. Only five rookies have done it in the last 27 years. And it was, it's Ovechkin, Crosby, Malkin, McDavid, and oddly Matthew Barzell. Um, hmm. He was Matthew Barzell was 1.01. It was 85 points in 80. I have 84 games, but that is I that is a typo <laughs> that I need to fix. Uh, anyway, yeah. So I, I think so. What I wrote essentially, and then like I I put into context, like Patrick Kane, his rookie year in 2007, he had 72 points in 82 games. Okay, so I'm like, all right, 72 points. Can he break? Can Bedard break that? Well, then I was going back and looking at the numbers as to like what the goal scoring average was and the power play league percentage was in 2007 versus what it is, what it was last season. When Kane had 72 points in his rookie year, 
the the scoring average in the league was 2.78. The scoring average last year in the NHL was 3.18 and it was the highest since 1934 90 90 or 1993-94. And then I was looking at the power play and I'm like, "All right, what was the power play success rate when Kane was there?" It was 19 point or I'm sorry, 17.75. This past season, it was 22.3, and it was the ninth highest percentage ever. So I'm thinking, I mean, if Kane got 72 in his rookie year when scoring was way down, I I don't run it past Bedard to be a point-per-game player. Yeah. So like my prediction for, for Connor is like, I think I'm setting it at 84. Like I think 84 points is, is doable. And it's funny because I say that number out loud, and I'm like, right. I don't know if that's too low or if it's too high because like he it could be like a wide range of outcomes like he just shatters everything and becomes like an 100 point player probably not gonna happen but it's like 84 it feels like i mean i'll set the over under i guess at 82 like point per game player but i'm like if he stays healthy for all 82 games like 84 like that's my prediction for now yeah i mean i just keep thinking like this is gonna be like potentially mcdavid part two or something because you know we saw what he was doing i know um, you know, we was playing last year, uh, junior league, right? Just different, different stuff, mm-hmm. but still it's Bedard. And, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. It was kind of this debate. Uh, it was like, Bedard's probably the number one guy. There's also Fantilli. And then Bedard just shot through the last year or so. But I feel like right. there was kind of a debate at one point, like, yeah, it could be Fantilli, maybe number one. But then that was like two years ago. Obviously Bedard has just taken over since then, but yeah, I'm kind of expecting big numbers right away, and I think people will be disappointed if he's not putting up like at least at least 50 in a, se- in a season first year, right? <laughs> yeah, I think the tricky thing about it is McDavid is six foot two, you know, like his size. Yeah. Austin Matthews is big. Bedard's coming in at barely, like not even five ten, like he's just yeah. under five ten. So it's like a little you different, know, yeah. Yeah, it's like especially as a rookie, but then I'm, but then I look at him and I'm like, dude, his physique is, he's he's massive, like he's so strong. He has tree trunks for legs at five foot, barely five foot ten. I mean, so that's why it makes it hard. It's like okay, like when Patrick Kane came into the league, go look at photos of him as a rookie. Like I I think he's barely one sixty five. Like he is so small, and. I look at Connor and I'm like, he looks like he's been in the league for a couple of years, like based on his stature. So that's where it's just like, maybe 84 isn't out of the question or maybe beyond that isn't out of the question because even though he is undersized, like he's yeah. not an, he's not a, he's not underweight. Like he's, he, if anything, he's like, he's a perfect size right now. And so it's not like he has to fill out his frame anymore. It's just like, he's kind of like already at his playing, uh, playing weight. It's funny. I've heard David Kaplan tell this story before about Patrick Kane when he was a rookie and he's about to throw out the first pitch at a Wrigley and uh, he's up there, I don't know, getting a soda or something. And Cap was like, are, is your dad like, we're, like, who are you? Like, are you with your dad or something? He's like, no, I'm throwing out the first pitch. He's like, who are you? He's like, I'm number one pick for the Blackhawk. He's like, oh. Didn't even realize who Patrick Kane was at that point. So I was just thinking back, talking about like, um, you know, where a guy like that was in terms of stature and, and like literal, literal stature and um, yeah. how much they, you know, like once, once Bedard um, gets into is a couple years into the league, I guess we'll really see what he's, what he's doing, obviously based on all the hype and everything, but it does feel like um, I know it's, not often, but you have Crosby, you have McDavid. When you have the hype around these kinds of players, it seems like they deliver. I don't know if it's more so than other sports, but we'll, we'll hear about a guy in another sport, the NBA or whatever, and then for whatever reason, that, that that certain guy just didn't really turn into what we thought he was going to turn into. It doesn't seem like there's any doubt about Bedard, though. Just like McDavid, Crosby, other names that have come. Jack Eichel was very good, obviously. Right. Um, just names we've heard about. So I feel like he's going to be at least the all-star we think he's going to be, if not more. Yeah, exactly. And just look at interviews of this kid and, and you're just like, my gosh, he looks so mature. I mean, he, he talks mature. He's, he's like well beyond his years. And it's not like he looks nervous on camera and you're like, ah, like maybe it's getting to him a little bit. Like he just looks so comfortable in his own skin. And I think with the breaking or the, the separating point for me was the world juniors. Like, yeah, this kid, knew that 
all eyes are going to be on him. He's got the weight of his country on his shoulders. He's the youngest player on his team. And he like shattered record. Like he, he does, he put up points that nobody else has ever done at that age. And it's just like, my gosh. And, and for him to like, for him to continue and then rejoin the Regina Pats and just go on an absolute tear. It's just like, this guy seems so unfazed. So even if he doesn't, let's just say hypothetically live up to expectations, his rookie season, whatever those expectations are, whether it's whatever is over under is 65 and a half points by like the betting favorites or whatever, or if it's me saying an 84 points, like whatever those expectations are, he's going to live up to them over the, over the course of his career, just because he's, he's so, he's so dynamic of a player that you're not, we're not going to look back at his career and be like, man, he just underperformed. Like, I think it's just going to be like his underperforming is still going to be so good. So I just don't think it's ever going to become a, like a hindrance for him. Like I, I he's just going to, he's just going to live up to, to the expectations and he's not going to let that, let him bother him. Oh, and, and going back to the Felino um, edition, I think, the Hawks fans are going to like him a lot because he just seems like a guy that's just, you know, that cliche, greasy, like he'll fight, he'll do whatever, he'll score some goals, but mainly he's going to have like that physical presence. So I think, uh, I think he'll be a good addition over there for sure. Um, also, yeah, I think we had him, oh no, we, we interviewed him over Zoom right after he got acquired with Taylor Hall. Um, they did the Zoom simultaneously with the Blackhawks and my immediate takeaway after that conversation with Nick Felino was as soon as he retires, I think every broadcast team, TNT, ESPN, they should call him to be an analyst because he is so insightful. Um, and so like such a deep thinker and he like gets it. Like he has his, he has a pulse on like the locker room and yeah. what, what you need to succeed, what, 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 where you could be like, like he is, he is so insightful when it comes to that. So I think he's going to be, he's going to be a great addition, probably not on the ice. Like he might be more of obviously a bottom six guy penalty yeah. killer, but off the ice, he's going to be, he's going to be awesome for those young players. And he's, and he's a, a captain. I mean, he's, he was yeah. a captain in Columbus, so he's got that anyway. So that's, you know, I don't think the Hawks are going with a captain this year. Are they? I, I don't think they will. No, He'll be I the unofficial. He'll be one of the unofficial like leadership guys for sure, though. Exactly. Yeah, they'll probably go with the three alternates, and then I would imagine at some point Bedard's going to get the C. <laughs> but yeah, you mentioned um, broadcasting. So Darren Pang's coming in. Do you know Darren Pang at all? Um, he's obviously a good personality. I think uh, kind of like a good um, just addition in terms of where the Hawks are in their new era with a lot of different faces on the TV side as well, and just him coming in too. Have you gotten to talk with him before much? Yeah, so we've known, or I shouldn't say we've known each other, but like we've, anytime St. Louis comes to town, like Pang would be around or whatever. So we've kind of met each other in passing, but it was nice to have more of a formal introduction with him when he did get signed to be like our our teammate at NBC and at NBC Sports. Um, So I'm looking forward to having more, deeper conversations with him, um, off, you know, whatever off camera. So, but he is a, he's an awesome addition. And I think he brings that. We see it on TNT and we've seen it on ESPN, all those clips, like when he's saying, Holy jumping. And yeah. uh, like, he brings the, the combination of an old school mentality while also incorporating some new school while also incorporating some entertainment. Right. Yeah. So I think, especially during a rebuilding, probably another rebuilding year, it's going to be nice to have a guy like Darren Pang to kind of guide Hawks fans through it. And then when the Blackhawks are competitive again, it's going to be even better to have a guy like Darren Pang for, you know, potential special runs. So I'm very much looking forward to, to working with him and just being able to pick his brain and um, whether that's, you know, off, off camera or whatever, I think Hawks fans are, really going to enjoy enjoy that um do you think jonathan taze will retire or where do you think he and even patrick kane will end up so i would be surprised if jonathan taze played again but i feel like and at the risk of him potentially announcing something right after this podcast drops but it feels like (laughs) taves is probably going to go into the season without a team and without any formal announcement of something of, of some sort. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe next summer he decides to to hang it up. And maybe he just he has an idea that he's going to retire, but he doesn't want to totally shut that door because what if there's an injury to you know Colorado or something along during the season and they call Jonathan Taves and he's like, oh, you know what? I could be a second line center for half a season and, and try to get one more run out. You know, I don't know. Maybe he just wants to keep that door open, but it feels like to me, Next season will be the year where he, he'll probably make it official and close that door and then move on to to whatever's next. Patrick Kane's more interesting because he's made it known that he's not going to sign with a team before training camp or before the season starts. Like he wants he wants his injury to heal. He wants to become fully healthy, and then he wants to check out the hockey landscape, which teams are performing, which are underperforming, and then kind of pick his landing spot. I've had a couple teams in my mind. Um, like the first team I've had was was New Jersey. I feel like New New Jersey would be a fun team for him. They play fast. He can play with an American-born player in Jack Hughes, where I think they played together at the Worlds, I want to say. I know Kane and Quinn Hughes played at that Worlds. I can't remember if Jack joined them. But I know Jack Hughes really looks fondly of Patrick Kane um, because of their, the U.S. connection. Um, I just don't know financially. Could New Jersey do it? I'm not sure. The other team that this is going to make Blackhawks fans cringe. But what if he goes to Detroit with okay. and pair, repairs with Alex to bring it? Um, that would probably be more of a, like a two or three year deal as opposed to like a one year, because Detroit's not going to be a Stanley cup contender. And if Kane wants to be on a Stanley cup contender, he's probably gonna have to sign more of a one or whatever, one year deal maybe for a contender at like a lower cap hit. But if Detroit's looking at this, like we can, you can play with Alex to We'll give you a three-year deal. We'll give you a little bit of a higher AAV because you know they're they're looking to kind of make a run at some at some point in the near future. Like that wouldn't be a team that surprises me, and it would that would actually be really con- convenient for his family that lives in Buffalo because that is a very short drive from Buffalo to Detroit. So anyway, it's it was, it's a possibility, I guess, but it's going to be interesting to see where Kane signs and how long he waits. Uh, before he does actually land with the team, and even Buffalo is, is on the uh, on the rise here. It looks like at least after last season. I don't know what they're. I mean, I'm sure if they could if they could make that work, I'm sure they would try to. I don't know what their cap situation and all that is, but um, yeah, you mentioned Buffalo, and then yeah, you know, thinking about Detroit, I was thinking about them recently, uh, just yesterday, really. Um, I don't like you said. I don't think they're a cup contender, but I think they're definitely getting better. But are you kind of? I don't know if you've really thought much about their moves, but are you kind of puzzled by some of the moves they've made? I know the Brinkett was a great, uh, great addition. Obviously, we talked about him last year. I think I asked you, should they build, should the Hawks build around him or trade him? And they trade him to Ottawa, and now he's in Detroit. But <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know Detroit. I think they're on the on the up and up, but it's kind of taking its time. It seems. I'll say this about Detroit, and this I don't know if this might be unpopular, but I I see like Steve Eiserman getting a lot of flack on yeah. social media saying like, oh, like what's the yeah. Sizer plan? Like I I don't know if what right. this whatever. And in my eyes, the the one detriment to the plan is that they they have not got gotten any luck in the lottery. Mm-hmm. No luck. Yeah. Right. They have I think they've fallen in every single draft under Steve Eiserman. They have never jumped up. It's always been like if they if what was the year that they had the by far the the worst odds and then they they ended up getting the fourth overall pick, right? Years ago, yeah. Everything changes if Detroit won the lottery this year and they get Connor Bedard or if they whatever, a few years ago, you know, they got Jack Hughes or whatever, everything changes. But because you don't have because they haven't gotten that lottery luck, Steve Eiserman has had to try to figure out a plan of how do we fill around the edges and win with really good players as opposed to multiple great players as our cornerstones. So that's why you're seeing like uh, Lucas Raymond and Moritz Sider and Dylan Larkin. They're bringing Alex to bring it like they're all those guys are really good players, but they're not like franchise changers. So I think that's what Steve Eisenman did this summer where he's like, he's like, we just got to add a bunch of good players and, try to win that way by having a good team from top to bottom, as opposed to, Hey, these horses are going to carry us like the previous Red Wings teams and like the Tampa teams that he's been on with Kucherov and Stamkos or whatever. So I think I, like I, I don't see Steve Eiserman any differently. I just think they've gotten such poor lottery luck 
that they have not had that franchise player to they they haven't been able to land that franchise player and it they're 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 kind of seeing the struggles of how do we fill around the edges without having that generational talent yeah i think i saw and heard you know people were kind of questioning their the uh the blue line in terms of people they brought in there but they have a lot of good forwards too so yeah i don't know i mean they've they've gone up a little bit in points every year so and he inherited a dumpster fire anyway when he yeah. took over so yeah i was just curious but uh i feel like he's got a plan i mean it's steve eiserman so it's he's, it's not tampa bay yet he's trying to he's trying to get them going again but and if anything, he was the guy that reached for Moritz Sider with the six over, was it six or seven? He wasn't expected to go towards the mid to later first round. And when Detroit drafted him, it was in that draft class 2019 where it was, a, it was I believe it was like, the, it was a Kirby Doc draft, right? Where it was all those guys that could have gone in that range and Moritz Sider was not in the, talked about in that range. So when Detroit and Steve Eiserman drafted him there, it was kind of like, whoa, like that's a reach. And then turns out he's like, he would probably go two right now in the, in a redraft because he's that good. So he, I mean, he's done, he's done what he, his, like he's done his best with what he's made do. It's just, it's just hard. It's just really hard to rebuild and not have, not land that foundational piece. Also I have to ask you this. So you got to, I know you were covering Patrick Kane when he went to the Rangers, right? So that was probably kind of weird, right? Seeing him in blue and everything. How was that? Yeah. Yeah, that was weird because I was actually, the Blackhawks were on a road trip. They were on the West Coast and I was in San Jose. Um, and that was when word started to leak that Kane was likely going to be moved. And we had we had plans like NBC like had planned to send me to wherever Patrick Kane goes like we to cover his first game and so they ended up pulling me off that road trip early because they just wanted me to be prepared to go to wherever Kane gets traded and we I mean at that point we had an idea that it was going to be the Rangers so we were kind of following the Rangers schedule yeah and as soon as the trade got executed I I flew to Philadelphia because they had a, a road game w- against the Flyers. And then the very next day, the Rangers played a home game, um, ironically enough, against the Senators with Alex Dabrinkit. So I ended up flying to Philadelphia. When I land in Philadelphia, it f- like we had gotten word that uh, Kane wasn't wasn't expected to play. Like he was going to play and he was going to debut in Madison Square Garden. So... I flew to Philadelphia. Then I was like, all right, he's not playing. So I'm going to take a train to New York right now. So I took a train to New York and ended up covering his first game the next day. And it, it was, it was like a very weird experience because, um, I had covered the, they didn't even have a morning skate because it was the second of a back to back, but typically the injured players will skate the morning of. And it was in that morning, it was Keandre Miller who was on that suspension and then it was Igor Shosturkin, who is typically the if you're the game day back or if you're the game day starter, you'll skate that morning if you didn't play in the first game. So he was scheduled to play in the second game. Um, so seeing Kane come onto the ice in blue, like it was, it was just very weird, and it kind of like took a like you really had to process it. And then watching the game was even weirder because it was like I was watching him, like I kind of know his warm up routine. And I was watching him during warmups and it was like, he kind of, he like kind of his routine got a little disrupted because he's making sure that he doesn't want to disrupt anyone else's routine. So he's trying to like weave through guys. He, he goes to the, the, the face-off circle and he does a stick handling drills and he likes to pass the puck. And he was just like, I, you know, so it was just very weird. Um, and then it kind of, I guess, got more normal as the season went on, but that day was, was wild, uh, to try to process it all. I guess too. Uh, was he surprised to see you there? Because I mean, a familiar face at least, right? I was there with Ben Pope of the Chicago Sun Times, um, and he like the, I, this clip like was on Twitter, but he like sat down at his media conference, and like Ben and I are in the front row, <laughs> and so he's like, "Ah, Chicago boys." <laughs> so like, he was nice that I guess like he probably appreciated that he saw yeah. like some familiar faces, but yeah. I think it was so. Um, 
I think he had so much on his mind that it probably just didn't even register. Like he was probably just so like game, you know, morning skate. I just, there's so much to unpack. And, um, so yeah, but it was, it was, it was funny when, when he said that. And then after the game, it was nice to talk to him just briefly, just like thanking him for what he meant or whatever, just what he um, did for me in my career and whatever. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a nice day. You've had quite the career already with the, with guys like that, and now you have Bedard coming into it. Or, uh, yeah, Bedard. I had to think about the name for a minute. Not McDavid, Bedard. Yeah, <laughs> Connor Bedard. <laughs> yeah. I, I've really gotten lucky. Like, I, I told you the when the Hawks won the lottery, I came back, and I was talking to my brother. And, like, the next day, I was talking to my family. And, like, I I told them. I was like, my job, knock on wood, that I'm still around. But, yeah. um, you know, like, my job for the next 15, 20 years changed because of this kid. Um, it's It's just the interest level. And I think the, I think the crazy thing about this now covering Patrick Kane, John of the Taves, it was great, but like Bedard is a Canadian born player and he is like one of the most hype prospects ever. So not just like Patrick Kane didn't get this much hype going into his draft year. And he was in a, like obviously an American born player, but it was still like no guarantee that he was going to be one overall. And he was going to have this hall of fame career with Bedard. It's like, the entire country of Canada is invested on what what this guy does. Like every every moment, they're like, "What is Conor Bedard eating for breakfast? What is he doing at practice?" You know. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a very unique experience covering a player that not just Blackhawks fans care about, but the entire country of Canada is gonna be very invested. So it's like I almost feel like a responsibility to make sure that I'm covering him and I'm writing. Um, good stories about this kid so and fair story whatever good or bad um so that people in canada are making sure that they're getting you know all this knowledge from whatever's happening with bedard in chicago yeah i know the one thing about him is apparently he's never had fast food in his life yeah i saw that and he apparently this started when he was like a young kid where he's like on this like we think of like i think of tom brady how he's like when after like 30 years old, that's when he started getting serious about his diet or Patrick yeah. Kane, when he started to get towards, you know, when he was 27, 28 years old is when he started working with a, a new trainer and, and was doing all these elastic muscle, uh, workouts and yet like kind of ditched the, the weights. And it's like, Bedard has been doing this since he was a kid. So it's like, it's crazy that he has the discipline to do that, but also he has that desire and, it's not just, oh, I'm in the NHL. Now I got to do these things. It's like he's been laying that groundwork for since he was a kid. So that's why he's already like way ahead of schedule than like any other player yeah. of his caliber was in, in years past. Do you have a, I'm sure you have a personal or had a personal connection with Rocky Words or any kind of stories that come to mind about him? Yeah, that's a really unfortunate news and kind of just out yeah. of left field. Um, I I'll say this about Rocky. I, he is before, before his, I don't want to say like his image got tainted a little bit with with whatever the, the off ice stuff and just the, the town hall fiasco. But before all that, he was viewed as not just the, the best owner in hockey, but the best owner in sports because he, he spent, he spent money. He revamped the, you know, the behind the scenes, like he added a bunch of employees. He was just so good to everyone. And the one thing I appreciated about Rocky was during those cup years, he would, he'd have an owner's suite in the 200 level or whatever, hundred level, wherever it was. But he always sat with the fans in section 119 in a folding chair. And it was just like with fans. And I don't think he ever did that because he wanted the glory and the worship and the praise when things were good. And he's like, yep, I, this is all me. I did it. He, I think he did it out of a place of humility where it's like, we're all in this together. Like this, this isn't like, I'm enjoying this just as much as you guys. And, and I remember when I was, I went to a game when I think I was in high school and Rocky was around the, the, just going around the concourse and fans were just running up to him wanting to take pictures and like he took pictures with every single person there without like feeling like he was bigger than than just like you know what i mean so he he was like he stopped for every picture he sat with the fans like he never wanted the glory or the fame of of the blackhawks winning stanley cups he he like he truly 
was a great owner as far as I'm going to hire all these people to do their jobs and I'm just going to sit on the sideline and let you, I'm not going to micromanage. Like I'm just going to hire the right people. I'll spend money. I'll do this, yada, yada, to make the organization the best. And so I, I've always appreciated that about Rocky. And it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, like 70, 70 is still young, you know, so, so it's, it's tough in that regard. But um, on the flip side, I also have, I, I have a lot of confidence in Danny Words too, moving forward that he's going to make sure that he, um, he carries Rocky's legacy from that regard. And he's not going to be afraid to, to do the same as his dad did as far as like spending money and making sure that uh, he wants the best for that, for the, for the Blackhawks organization. Um, we'll close on any bold predictions that you might have for 23-24, the Hawks or otherwise. Ooh, well, my bold prediction probably would have been the Connor Bedard 84 yeah. points, I think, right? Right, right. yeah, that, that qualifies, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm i trying to think of any bold predictions like around the NHL. I think I've picked the Leafs to win the Stanley Cup three straight years, so I don't know okay. if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to do that again yeah. this year. Um, I think, this isn't a bold prediction. Like I think Edmonton wins the cup this year. So okay. I'll, I'll go on record saying I was just looking at some of the moves earlier today of all the significant moves were made in the East, like Eric Carlson to Pittsburgh, Carolina added bunting, Dmitry Orlov. Um, you know, Boston's got a new look team. The Rangers added Blake Wheeler, Jonathan quick, like all those, all the moves were made in the East. I don't know a team in the West that got significantly better. Like Minnesota, they didn't really do much. Vegas, the defending cup champions, they didn't do much. Actually, yeah. they didn't do anything. Right. Um, they got rid of Riley Smith because like they were they're in a cat bind. Um, like Dallas added Matt Duchesne, I mean, for a good price, but they also lost Domi. And that, you know, I don't know. It's just it feels like this is it's gotta be Edmonton's year. Uh and so I'm just gonna say Edmonton kind of kind of rolls through the West and they get the winner of the gauntlet that's gonna be the East. And I think they're because they're going to be fresher and because of the history, the playoff disappointments, I think once they get to the Stanley Cup, I just don't know that anyone's going to dethrone McDavid and Dreisaitl. I know. those That tandem is insane. I mean, I don't have to tell you. How, you, you, you've you talked with him, I'm sure, personally. I know you've talked with McDavid, at least. Probably both. But um, Yeah. I've also talked to McDavid about Debrinket because he <laughs> played with Debrinket in uh, the OHL. So every time, every time Edmonton rolls through, I'd always be like, Hey Connor, you got a few seconds to talk about Debrinket, and I remember one time he joked with me. He's like, "It's like every time I come to Chicago, I'm getting I'm asked about Debrinket." <laughs> so, I'm like, well, it's, sorry. <laughs> it's it's got to be kind of fun. I mean, you're used to talking with different people um, like that, but do you ever think like, "Wow, I'm talking to Connor McDavid right now about whatever"? Um, a yes and no. Like the yeah. thought crosses my mind, but I'm, when I'm doing the interview, it doesn't. Yeah, of course. Like maybe there's an, in the middle of an interview, maybe I'm thinking like, holy cow, I can't believe I'm talking to McDavid right now. But it's it like it doesn't really hit me until like later where it was like, wow, wow, that was cool. I, I think the um, the Ovechkin night when he scored his 800th goal oh, yeah. at the United Center, I remember I pivoted away. I'm like, I'm going to Washington's locker room because that was history. And like, I'm not covering what whatever just happened from the Blackhawks side. And I remember being there and he had all those hats in his stall and. I'm like looking around and there's like 15 media people. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm one of 15 people like right now for this moment. Like this is going to yeah. be shown in like NHL history highlights. And so like, it was very cool that I, I got to be there. So I think times like that, you're like, man, I cannot believe I was inside that locker room for it. But yeah, like in the moment, you know, if you're interviewing like McDavid or, or Crosby or whatever it is, I'm not, it doesn't really hit me until kind of like after you know, or it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I've been, I've been, I've been doing it a while now. So it, I think in the early years that definitely, I definitely kind of would get starstruck a little bit, but it, it doesn't really hit me in that way now. Well, and of course you're a pro. I mean, like I, like you said, you're a pro, uh, debatable. So you, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's funny. It's like, it, you know, even with me, like I was like talking to Dan Shulman and in that moment I was like, damn, I'm talking to Dan Shulman. But then I've talked to them a couple of times and it's like, you know, it's just another person on the other side of the screen. You're on TV and on the radio or whatever, and it's like, this is cool, like, for me. Like, I'm talking with a guy who's, like, a pro and a legit writer and doing all this stuff, but also it's like, okay, another guy chatting, you know, sports right now. So it's, I know, in my own world, I know what you mean in terms of, uh, right. you don't really think about it. It's just kind of a different person on the other side of the screen, or in my case, anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I think, for me, I, I just, I, I try to, like, 
us having a conversation right now, like I, I always want the conversation to feel like we, we don't, we like forget that this thing is recording right now. You know, like I just want to like just two guys talking hockey. And so whenever, whenever you can build a rapport with like a player like that, where maybe you're just talking hockey and you're like, you know, man, I wish I was recording that. Or, you know, it's like, ah, it was good to kind of just talk. Um, that stuff kind of goes away over time. Like as you build those relationships with those people and then you're like, okay, this is like a, a cordial relationship, a professional relationship, as opposed to like me interviewing Connor McDavid, the best player in the world, you know? So it's, you know, it's, it's different. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally get what you mean. And it was great chatting with you again. Uh, you know, keep doing your thing. Awesome to see it. I'll see you. I'm sure I'll see you on TV and hear you on the radio <laughs> at some point soon. Season's like, you know, like we said, a month away already. So almost yeah. a month away. So keep crushing it. Yeah. Thanks, dude. It's It'll be a fun season. Hopefully it's a little bit better for for you in Columbus this year. I think it will be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it should be it should be an interesting season on in both Chicago and Columbus, maybe for different reasons, but um, fun, fun season nonetheless. Yeah.